It's hard to believe it's the last meeting already. It seems like we just started. Time flies when you're enjoying Christ. I don't know if you noticed, but the outline for this meeting is actually not an outline. It's some excerpts that I, I found when I was reading uh, the book, A Seer of the Divine Revelation, and I, it just, they impressed me so much, I just wanted to print them out and give them to you. Um, but we will, we will talk about those. Uh, we also had a few more questions that we want to address, and uh, before that, I... I'd like to go back to a previous question and fellowship a little bit more just to clarify a little bit because it's, it's a, you know, the church life is so wonderful, but it's not without its difficulties. We, you know, there's, a, there's just all kinds of people here. <laughs> the more people there are, the more problems there are. You know, if we could get rid of all the people, we would get rid of all the problems. But then we wouldn't have the church. So here we are, problems and all. And uh, that's the church life. It's, it's a, a messy kitchen sometimes, but the food's still there. And <clears throat> yesterday... In response to a, a question, I said that we there's only three things that would cause us not to receive a believer. Um, and this is simply based, I mean, I'm not going to go through all the verses today, but, but I will tell you our standing, it, everything we practice and everything we teach is, is in the Word and and these things, are, in particular, are in the New Testament. <clears throat> the first thing that we that would damage the testimony of the Lord so greatly that we simply can't have it is any kind of idolatry. Idolatry is against the person of God Himself. It's it's so damaging that we, we, we can't have it. And you may say, well, I've never seen any idol worship in the church. Well, as with all problems, there are degrees. <laughs> there are degrees. You probably haven't seen anybody bowing down to a statue, but that doesn't mean there haven't been any idolaters. And in fact, if we were really honest, we would have to say, I'm an idolater. I have idols, do you? Sure. We have idols in our heart. And so if we're going to kick out every idolater, we're just going to have an empty room here. Um, so there are degrees. And when we say we, we won't tolerate idolatry, we mean real, actual idolatry. I've seen it. It's really rare. Thank God it's really rare. Sometimes, you know, in the book of Galatians, you have this term, false believers. There is such a thing. Sometimes false ones come in among us, and they, they actually could bring in some idolatry. I saw that a, a number of times, but not often. The second thing that we don't allow in the church life and not, maybe allow isn't the right word. We, we don't tolerate it. We don't um, receive it. It's division. But I say again, division has degrees. Have you never been divisive? You might have already been divisive in this meeting. We all have had dissenting thoughts, divisive thoughts. That's a degree of division. We, we, we know that, and, and we, we understand that because we all suffer from that. 
What we can't allow is people actually causing division in the church life. That is so damaging to the body of Christ, we just, we can't have it. So a person who actually causes division, we will, we will ask them to leave. But do you know that even those people, we always, always, always make a way for them to come back. And why? Because in the New Testament, there is no such thing as excommunication. Now, Christianity today, in many groups, practices excommunication. There's not a single case in the Bible, in the Old Testament or the New Testament. There is not one case of excommunication. So we don't practice excommunication. What we practice is quarantine. Now, many of you just went through the morning revival on Leviticus and dealing with leprosy. In dealing with leprosy, there's a quarantine, not an excommunication. And leprosy signifies the sin of rebellion, which is very closely related to division. So even with those ones, and I can testify on behalf of the brothers and the co-workers, <clears throat> I've been around long enough that I personally knew Unfortunately, I personally knew a lot of people who caused division. And I know the, the, the links that the brothers went to to give them a way to come back. There's always a way. Okay, the third thing we said we, we, we don't allow or tolerate is gross sin. But I, I think even here we need a little explanation. Um, if you read 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, it's the one case, it's the one case in the New Testament where a saint in one of the local churches was involved in a gross sin. Incest. Yuck. I've been in the church life a long time, and I'm very happy to say I have never seen a case of incest, and I hope I never do. But it's in the Bible. It's in, it's in the church in Corinth. It actually happened in the church in Corinth. And it's so interesting. You know, originally, the elders in Corinth didn't do anything about it. And then Paul came in. He said, no, you have to do something because this is leaven." And if you allow this leaven to remain, it'll leaven the whole lump. And then he spoke plainly. He said, remove the evil man from among yourselves. So they did. But then they went too far. <laughs> they went too far. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul had to tell them, now you need to receive him back. And you know why? You know how Paul came to that conclusion? He says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 if I forgave anyone, I forgave in the person of Christ. And in other words, when Paul considered this person looking at Christ, you know what he saw with Christ? forgiveness. So Paul was one with the Lord. Um, and, and, and to my surprise, first of all, I'm surprised that a person who committed incest could really make it back into the church life. But that's, that's the one singular case in the New Testament. And he did make it back in the church life. And he came back to the same locality. And if I was one of the elders in court that said, Hey, Paul, we got a real good church over in Ephesus. Send him over there. <laughs> you know, it might just be a little too much to have him come back to Corinth. Paul said, No, you, you receive him back. 
Well, you know, that's the only case in the whole New Testament where a person was quarantined because of gross sin and he made it back. So I would tell you there's a distinction between a person who commits a sin and a person who lives habitually in sin. You see that distinction very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You also see it in 1 John, one of the very misunderstood verses in the New Testament. In 1 John chapter 3, it says, He who is begotten of God does not sin. So some Pentecostal groups and others use that verse to say you can lose your salvation because you sinned. And the Bible says he, he who is begotten of God does not sin. So you must have lost your salvation. You need to get saved again. Is that really the meaning of 1 John 3, 9? No, it's very clear from the entire book that John is talking about a person who lives habitually in sin. That's different. And you know, for a, for a real believer to live habitually in sin, that's a rare thing. That does not happen often. For a real believer to commit a sin, unfortunately, is not rare. First uh, John 2.1 says, These things I have written to you that you may not sin. But then the next words are, If anyone sins. We have an advocate with the Father. That was the verse I enjoyed this morning for morning revival. If anyone sins, we have an advocate. Amen. 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 That advocate is our propitiation. He's our, the reality of expiation. And like I say, is there anyone in this room who doesn't sin? No. So if we're going to exclude sinners, again, I say, again, I say it's a matter of degree. All of us have committed some pretty terrible sins. Um, I seriously doubt, and please don't tell me, but I seriously doubt that any of us committed incest. My goodness, I seriously doubt it. But that's, why does the Bible use such an extreme case? To tell us how we deal with it. That's why. And it's, it's quite clear that that brother in Corinth did not live in that sin. He committed that sin. But he did not habitually live in that sin. So the church received him back. I'm glad that the church receives us back after we sin. <laughs> I've, I've needed forgiveness, thank God. Thank the Lord I, I didn't commit that sin, but I committed some. So what's our attitude? That was, what, that was the question that we were covering. What's our attitude? Our attitude is, you know what, oh, let me finish this thought in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. Talking about the brother, Paul says, you should not associate with fornicators. But then he explains himself. He says, I'm not talking about the fornicators of the world. He said, if so, we would have to leave the world if we're not going to associate with fornicators. Then he said, no, I'm talking about the ones in the church. Well, what is he saying? Again, I say, because it's in the context of this brother. It's in this case of the brother who committed incest, that Paul speaks this word, he obviously means not a person who has sinned in that way, but a person who continues in that sin. That's the distinction. It's one thing to sin. It's another thing to live habitually in it. What we can't have is a habitual living in sin, because that will leaven the whole lump. Uh, that's the clear word in the New Testament. So I hope, you know, the Lord will, will um, guard our minds and keep us people eating the tree of life. 
you know, tree of knowledge is all about right and wrong. And when I was younger, one time there was a big problem, and it was legitimate. It really happened. I mean, factually, it happened. And I went to talk to an older brother about it, and I told him, this is just wrong. W-R-O-N-G, wrong. It's wrong. And he said, yep, it is. I said, well, what are you going to do about it? He said, nothing. I said, but right is right and wrong is wrong. He said, yep, that's right. And then, listen to what he said to me. I think I was, I was 30. I was in my 30s. He says, Mark, I'm worried about you. <laughs> he said, you really need to eat the tree of life. That's what he said to me. He said, you really need to eat the tree of life. He said, you know everything. That's your problem. <laughs> you know what's right. You know what's wrong. That's your problem. You need to be a person of life. What a shepherding. What a shepherding that was to me. Um, And I would say the same thing to you. Be people of life. And whose job is it to determine in these cases who should be received by the church and who should not? It's the elders. The elders in Corinth made that decision. Of course, they fellowshiped with Paul because they had a relationship with Paul. Paul had a very particular relationship with the church in Corinth, so they fellowshiped with Paul. The brothers might do that, but in the end, Paul doesn't make the decision. In the end, the brothers make the decision, and you have to trust the brothers because they know a lot of things that you don't know. And don't ask them to know what they know. It won't help you. Those details will not help you. In fact, I'm so sorry that I know. I wish I didn't know. And the more you know, the worse it is. It's better not to know. This is why we need to pray for the brothers. They're the ones who have to know everything in order to make... A, a consideration before the Lord. They're like the priests in the type in Exodus. They have to examine the case of leprosy to determine if there's been an outbreak or not. Do you really want that job? I don't. That's not a good job. Um, but it is the job of the the priests. And in in a local church, it is the job of the elders. So so pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for their wisdom. Pray for their, their understanding. Pray for their discernment. Um, it's hard. And yet these things happen. They happen in every local church. Um, you know, I've only been visiting New Zealand a few times. I heard of a few problems. Let me tell you, just so you know, you're, you're exactly like all the other local churches on the earth. Exactly the same. You're not worse and you're not better. You're exactly the same as all of the local churches on the earth. I have a little joke with the elders in Seattle where I live uh, whenever I'm there with them for the elders meeting. At the end of the elders meeting, I always say the same thing. I say, Welcome to the church in Corinth. (laughs) Every local church is the church in Corinth. Uh, That means every local church has people who fail, who sin, who they're new, they're weak. These things will happen. That's why the church is not a police station. It, it's not a law court. The law court and the police station is the judgment seat of Christ. He'll, he'll make everything right. Uh, but our job is not 
to do that. Our job is to give people a way to enjoy Christ and to live in the church life. That, that's our job. Okay, let's handle a few more questions and then we'll go on. We have time this morning. We'll be able to do everything. How, how can I, whoops, how can I restore something to someone from my past? Going back even to childhood days and no longer in contact with them or to a large company I used to work for. Can you share some of your experiences? Yeah, unfortunately I can. I didn't get saved until I was at the university, so, yeah. How do we, what, what's the spiritual principle here? What we're really talking about is restitution uh, and clearance of our past. That's really what we're talking about when we become a believer in Christ. The unrighteous things that we did... Uh, to the extent that it is possible, we need to make them right. We need to restore. You know, when Zacchaeus got regenerated by the Lord, he said, whatever I have taken, I restore four times as much. Um, That was the Lord's leading for him, was to not only restore it, but to add to what was restored. If you read the type in the Old Testament, that's the principle you not only restore, but you add something. That's what, that's what Zacchaeus did. Um, many of us in our past may have stolen something, or we didn't pay a debt that we owed, or we have something that does not belong to us that we should have returned and we didn't. Um, that may happen. And if it's a, you know, a long time ago, and you have no way to restore it, or it's a large company, what do you do? I had a very similar question when I, when I believed in the Lord. Um, I, I just exposed myself. I, um, when I was at the university, I, I, I had a car that I drove to the university every day, and it was a nice car. It was a really nice car. So you know what I did? I parked it illegally every single day. I did not park it in a proper parking space because I didn't want anyone to touch my precious car. And then every single day, I got a parking ticket. And every single day, I threw that parking ticket in the trash. I never paid it. I know, Mark Robbie's a terrible brother. I think we should kick him out. Let's get rid of this guy. He's, he's horrible. You believe how bad he is? I beg your forgiveness. I did, com- I did restore. Here's what I did. After I got saved, I came into the church life. The Lord touched me. No one told me. The Lord touched me. Man, I got to pay my parking tickets. <laughs> So I went to the police station in that city. I walked up to the counter. I said, uh, here's my name. Here's my driver's license. I owe a whole bunch of parking tickets. Let me know how much they are. And they looked, you know, in those days, it wasn't like today. Today, everything would be in a computer. In those days, it wasn't. (laughs) So they said, We're sorry, sir, we have no record of your parking tickets. I said, well, I said, I I have an estimate. I said, I can tell you roughly how many there were. I said, I really need to pay them. They said, no, uh, we can't accept any money from you because we don't have any record of any outstanding tickets. I said, I'm telling you that there are outstanding tickets. And I, would want, I, and I need to pay them. I need to. They wouldn't let me. So I went back and asked the brothers. I said, brothers, 
I feel really bad. What should I do? Because I, I had, this wasn't the only case, unfortunately. <laughs> and most of the cases, I was able to just make it right. But that one, I couldn't. So the brothers told me, offer that money to the Lord that you would have given to the police department. Offer it to the Lord. So I did. And I added something to what I thought I, I owed. And then I asked for the Lord to forgive me. And then I never worried about it again. And you shouldn't worry about it again. That's, that's the past life. Yeah, if you wronged someone in your childhood, I did that too. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I have eight siblings. Can you imagine how many people I wronged in my childhood? You know, when I got saved, none of my siblings were saved. I had to apologize to all eight of them for many things that I did as a child, especially to my brothers. Man, you know what, you know what brother siblings do? They fight. At least in my family, they do. And it turns out, I, I grew to be a little bigger than my four older siblings, so I really fought with them to make up for all the times when they were bigger than me. <laughs> then when I got saved, I had to apologize to them. And I told them, I'm a believer in Christ now. And what I did to you was wrong. And I'm very sorry. I, I apologized to a lot of people. Many times restitution means to apologize. And I wrote a lot of letters of apology. So if it's a childhood friend, write them a letter and tell them, I'm sorry. Uh, I feel bad. Because today I believe, and use it as a testimony, I believe in the Lord. The Lord in me does not agree with what I did, and I don't agree with it. They may be touched to believe in the Lord. Okay, I hope that gives you some idea uh, of how to clear up the past. Okay, this one is uh, sad, but this is another thing we deal with in the human life. My Brother passed away suddenly and unexpectedly five months ago. He was saved many years ago, but backslid and never recovered. Back to the Lord. I still grieve so deeply for him. For years and years, my husband and I prayed for my brother, for the Lord to remember him, have mercy on him, protect him, keep him, and recover him again. We were heartened when saints told us that they mentioned his name in their prayers way before he passed away. I still mention my brother's name to the Lord because it helps soothe the deep sense of loss I feel for him. Is it appropriate to pray to the Lord about someone who has passed away? My biggest regret is that I didn't do enough to recover my brother back to the Lord again. Okay, there's two, two things there. One is do we pray for people who have died? I don't know. I don't know if that's appropriate or not. What I do know is that everyone who has died will be resurrected. Everyone. Believers and unbelievers. And when they are resurrected, they will be in exactly the same condition they were when they died. In other words, if you pray for your brother what, what is the purpose of your prayer? The Lord is not able to do anything at the present time for him. Um, so I wouldn't tell you not to, but I would tell you that don't have an expectation that through your prayer something will change with a relative who has died. It won't change. And then on the point of regret, you know, all of us would say that. Me too. Um, I, I have one sibling who has already passed away. And thank the Lord 
before she passed away, I, I, pre I did preach the gospel to her. She did receive the Lord. But, you know, other people have passed away that didn't get saved. And then you feel, oh, what should, what, what should I have done? Or in this case, he was saved, but he wasn't living a, a, a church life. Well, I would say don't beat yourself up too badly. You obviously cared for him, obviously. And you obviously prayed for him and other saints prayed for him. There's no guarantee that those we love and care for will take the way we hope they will take, is there? Whether it's our children, our parents, our brothers, our sisters, they have to choose it. And what's our responsibility? You know what our responsibility really is, whether, whether we're talking about a parent to the children, uh, a brother or sister, or even to our own parents, our responsibility is firstly to be a pattern of what we speak to them. If we want them to be a strong believer in the church life, you got to be that. Otherwise, your words will be empty when you tell them to do it. You can't expect your kids to go to the meeting and you stay home. <laughs> you can't expect your kids to read the Bible when you don't. Um, so the first responsibility we have with anybody we love and care for is be a pattern to them. The second thing is to pray for them, which you obviously did. That's what you can do. After that, they, they need to choose for themselves what they're going to do. And if you say, oh, I wish I had said more, I would tell you that especially with your relatives, your words don't mean that much. They really don't. You know, with, with strangers they do, <laughs> but not with your relatives. One time we had a gospel training, and Brother Lee was training the young people, and he, he just interjected this because he was actually talking about the campuses. But he interjected, he said, with your relatives, try not to say very much at all. He said, because they are not listening to what you say. They're looking at you because they know you. And then he used an analogy. He said, if they ask you for a cup of water, Give them one drop. <laughs> because what we do is they ask for a drop and we give them Niagara Falls. <laughs> Genesis to Revelation. <laughs> and we drowned them in our speaking. But they're not impressed by that because they know us. I, the only way my eight siblings and my mother ultimately got saved, it took a long time because it took me a long time to grow. And finally, you know, I gave, oh, you know, I gave them all kinds of things and I spoke a lot of things. You know, when my mother died, I was taking care of her affairs. I, I found all the... I found her recovery version that I had given her and the books I had given her. Every one of them looked like they had never been opened. And I'm pretty sure they never were opened. My mother, she, she was not an educated person. She grew up on a farm. She was not impressed by my speaking, not at all. What she told me later when she did receive the Lord, she said, she said, I had nine children. She said, I saw you change. That's what convinced me. That's what we need to do with our relatives. So I say in this case, you regret that you didn't say more. Don't be too hard on yourself. If you had said more, it may not have helped. I think the best we can do for our relatives is... Do our best to live the Lord and magnify Him, and then they'll, they'll see that. That's the best we can do. 
How can we know if it is the Lord's anointing or our own feeling? It is hard to distinguish between the soul and the spirit. That's true. It is hard. And the way to distinguish between the soul and the spirit is not by introspection. The secret to discerning the spirit from the soul is the word of God. That's Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is living and operative and able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart, piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit. We cannot discern our soul from our spirit. The, 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 the analogy Hebrews 4 uses is the bone marrow within the bone. That's, that's how close the soul and the spirit are. They're like the marrow inside the bone. How do you discern that? You don't. The Word does. The Word of God exposes. It shines light on our soulish living. And it tells us the words that you spoke to your children this morning, they were in your soul. You didn't know that at the time you said it. Maybe you did. Maybe you had some sense of life in your spirit that told you, you shouldn't have said that. Or it told you, you shouldn't have said it that way. But you weren't that clear. But then you come to the word of God, the light in the word enlightens you, and you say, oh, that was my soul. Now your soul has been discerned from your spirit. Now you can confess and ask the Lord to give you a, a living according to the spirit. So, you know, there's two points related to discerning our spirit from our soul. The first one is the, the word can do that. Where we cannot do it, the word can do it. And then the second thing is, as we grow in life, we will have a keener sense of what is the soul and what is the spirit. I once asked Brother Lee as a young person, and I'm guessing that this is a question from a young person. I once asked Brother Lee, we had a question and answer just like this, and, but, it, but it wasn't written down. So Brother Lee said, does anyone have any questions? I said, yeah, Brother Lee. I think I was 18 at the time. I said, Brother Lee, how do we know when we're in our spirit? I thought that was a really good question because I had no idea what the answer was as an 18-year-old. And Brother Lee says, well, brother, do you know when you're in your flesh? I said, yeah, mm -hmm. I, I, I think I do. He says, do you know when you're in your mind? I said, well, sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. No. And then he said, the way to know that you're in your spirit is that you're not in your flesh or in your mind. <laughs> so that was his real answer. He said, he said, if you just subtract the flesh and the soul, what will be left is the spirit. Isn't that a real experiential answer? That's, that's really more how it really works in our actual experience, isn't it? So, you know, it, it, the more we grow, the more experience we will have of that. Okay, question two from the same person. This is why I'm guessing this is a younger person. If we like someone, how do we know if the feeling is of ourself or of the Lord? Or if someone likes us, how do we know if they are of the Lord? if we don't have any feeling for them from the beginning? Well, this is a big, big, big question. <laughs> that question is basically, how do you know who you're supposed to marry? Um, <clears throat> when the right 
time comes, you will surely know it. The Lord cares very, very much for who we would marry. It directly affects his economy. Everything else you will do in your human life does not directly affect his economy. It indirectly affects his economy. But who you marry directly affects his economy. So you can be sure that if you are open to the Lord and if you are seeking the Lord, he will not let you make a mistake because he can't afford to. It's too important to him. Now, if you don't open to the Lord and you don't fellowship, I cannot give you the assurance that you won't make a mistake. You might. But if you open to the Lord, and I'm not saying you need to have a great revelation from the Lord. He will not write the name of the person in the clouds. You look up to heaven and it says, oh! No. It won't be like that. It doesn't actually take anything like that. If you pursue the Lord in this matter and stay in the fellowship with the saints, I assure you, you will not make a mistake. You won't. Well, how do you know if it's your feeling or the Lord's? It's a hard question to answer, but let me give a kind of answer. Let me use a negative example to answer this. Let's say you have a bad feeling. Now, you're saying you have good feeling. But let's say you have a bad feeling. I have a bad feeling about Toby. I'm mad at him. In fact, I'm offended. How do I know if that's my feeling or the Lord's feeling? You, you, you might say, well, if you're offended, for sure it's your own feeling. Oh, really? The Lord never is offended? See, that's a, that's a tree of knowledge answer. What's the tree of life answer? The tree of life answer is, when I consider this matter, and I say, hmm, Toby. <laughs> I have a certain kind of feeling. But now, when I pray, when I contact the Lord, when I am in my spirit, now how do I feel? Do I feel the same way or do I feel differently? And we all have this experience. As soon as you get in your spirit, the Lord says to you, Toby's just fine. You're the problem. Don't you have that experience? I have that experience a lot. And then I realize the Lord is not offended with Toby. That was me. That was not the Lord. Even though in my tree of knowledge mind, I can come up with all the reasons why Toby's wrong and I'm right. The Lord doesn't care about that. In the tree of life spirit, he says, you're the problem. So, how do you know if this feeling is from the Lord or not? It's really very much related to the first question about discerning the spirit from the soul. When you get into the spirit, what's your feeling? That's the answer. And that's how I knew. I did not agonize days and weeks and months deciding who to marry. I liked, I liked a sister. She liked me. That's a good start. <laughs> then we both prayed. We did pray. And when we prayed, we still liked each other. <laughs> and then we both fellowshiped with some saints. And then we still liked each other. And we got married. And we like each other after 38 years <laughs> of marriage. So I guess it was a good decision. In fact, I told my wife right before she left New Zealand, Ray, I said, you know, I think this might work out, this marriage. I said, I've got a really good feeling about it. I said, you know, I wasn't always so sure, but, you know, 
after 38 years? It's a joke, it's a joke, it's a joke. My wife understood it when I said it. She laughed. She said, yeah, I think it's going to work out, too. Okay. I have a young son. This is a good question, and, and it's a serious one. I have a young son who naturally displays some effeminate qualities. I'm afraid when he goes to school, he may be bullied and labeled as a homosexual, as effeminate gestures and behaviors are often labeled as this. How can I help him as he is also very meek in nature and not strong and tough as other boys? That's a real question. I have known people, I know a very, very dear brother in my own locality. He's older than me, and to this day, he has a very soft voice. He just does. In fact, if you heard his voice but and your eyes were closed, you might think he's a woman speaking. But that's his voice. It's always been his voice. And he has some especially gestures and things, kind of, it's kind of feminine. It's, it's the way he was born. He, he's married. He's a normal brother. There's nothing homosexual about him. He just has some effeminate qualities. So there, there are such people in, in life. And <clears throat> what I would say if I were his father, and this obviously was written by his mother, his father should be a big help to him in this matter. Um, his father could not change what he is by nature, not make him what he is not, but his father can teach him how to be a man. And if he doesn't have a father around, he needs a good pattern. He needs a good pattern. And it can't be you because you're his mom. It has to be a man. And he'll be fine. He needs to have a good pattern. He needs to understand who he is. And he needs to have confidence in who he is. Um, he can. Despite the fact that he may have that that natural quality about him, he can still have that. And yes, he might be teased. But, you know, most boys, when they get teased, they fight back. <laughs> if you were my son, I would say if somebody, te if somebody teases you, punch him in the nose. <laughs> That'll stop it. That'll stop it quick. I'm not saying literally, okay. But in other words, you don't, have to, you don't need to be bullied. That's what I would tell him. Don't be bullied. So, yeah, get, make sure he has a good pattern uh, to follow. Okay, I came to this training as the last resource to my shaky marriage. The Lord speaking has rescued me back to his economy. Our marriage is for the building up of the body of Christ. It's not for me to be treated as a queen by my husband. I like that. Um, that's a good realization, isn't it? It's a good realization. I'm trying to shepherd a young couple right now. They've been married 10 years. Talk about a mess. Oh, my goodness. Shaky, shaky, shaky marriage. The wife, not the husband, committed adultery multiple times. And she, whatever the brother does, is never, ever, ever enough. No matter how much money he ever makes, and he has a really good job, it's not enough. 
No matter how nice their house is, it's not good enough. No matter how, what kind of car he buys her, it's not good enough. That means she's a queen. And there are people who expect that, even, sorry to say, even in the church life. It's the wrong view of marriage, isn't it? And that's why I like this statement the sister made. That may be the fairy tale version of marriage that's in the world. My knight in shining armor will come and carry me off on a white horse to my palace. That's the fairy tale. But we live in the church life. We see that marriage is for our human need. It is. It's for our legitimate human need. And we see that marriage is wonderful and lovely even in the human life. But we also see that it has a much, much deeper significance and that the real reason, you know, God could have created us to be like the amoebas. <laughs> the amoebas reproduce themselves. They don't need, you know. You know what an amoeba is? A single-celled creature. They can, they can just become two. And then those two can become four. Sometimes I ask the Lord, why wasn't I just an amoeba? It would have made life so much simpler. You know, because the way you designed the human life, Lord, is really complicated. Why did God ordain marriage? Why did he create us with that need and that desire? For his economy. Everything about us. The way he designed us, because he created us for his purpose. Everything about us was designed in a way that is suitable for the carrying out of his economy. So we, we understand that marriage is for that. It's for the church. And to, to take it a, one step further, marriage is like the laboratory where you learn how to be built up with another member of the body of Christ. And after you learn it in the lab, then you go to the church and practice it with everybody. And if you don't learn it in the lab, you're going to have a big problem in the church life. Because if you can't do it at home with that member of the body of Christ, now I can't sit in Seattle and say, oh man, I'm so one with the brothers in New Zealand. But these guys in Seattle, man, they're bad. No, if I'm not one with the brothers in Seattle, I can't pretend that I'm one with the brothers in New Zealand. If I'm not one with my wife, I can't pretend that I'm one with all the saints. I have to learn this lesson, this God's economy lesson in my home. Then that's what marriage is for. It's so you can learn that. That's a good view of marriage. Then you realize this person is not only my wife. She is my wife. She's also the member of the body of Christ I am closest to. So I have to learn how to have a body of Christ relationship with her. Then I can have that with all the members. Okay, now let's go on to... We're going to finish this very quickly because I'm not going to actually say much about this. I told you it's really not even an outline. What it is, it's a testimony. It's actually several testimonies by both Brother Nee and Brother Lee talking about how they were perfected by some sisters. To me, this is just really striking. I just don't know many stories like this. Now, if you ask me, I will tell you, yes, I've been very helped by some sisters. One sister who helped me a lot just happens to be 
a sister who was with Watchman Nee and who was with all of these people talked about here, Emmy Barber, Miss Groves, Peace Wong. There was a sister named Beth Rodemacher who was in China with Brother Nee and with Emmy Barber. And she, listened to this, talk about an excellent arrangement. When my wife and I were newlyweds, we got an apartment. Our next door neighbor was Beth Rodemacher and her husband. And we would just go next door and knock on the apartment and say, can we come in? And we'd go in and we'd say, just talk to us. We do, just talk, just talk. <laughs> we just want to sit here and listen. And she would tell us about her time with Brother Nee and Emmy Barber and others. Um, what a blessing that was. You know, even today, I really mean it. Older I get, I treasure, I really, really treasure the saints who are 20 years older than me, and they're getting to be fewer and fewer of them. Uh, but it's like you'd never lose the need for, um, for ones who are older and more experienced. You never, you never lose that need. And it just happened in the life of Watchman Nee and Witness Lee. Sisters were used by the Lord very, very much for their, for their perfecting. It's, it's extraordinary. And um, uh, in the last two outlines on the life useful to God, you know, what we saw there is that the male life needs the female life as a support. We don't need the female life to do what the male life is supposed to do, but, but the male life needs that support for, for them to function properly. You know, even the world knows that. The worldly proverb, behind every good man, it's a good woman. Supporting. That's right. It's true. But the role is to, you know, Emmy Barber was not the minister of the age. Watchman he was. But her role, believe me, at the judgment seat of Christ, I'd sure like to be Emmy Barber. Because, wow, what kind of, what did she do to support this brother so that he could fulfill his excellent ministry, it's fantastic. So I'm going to let you read the, this. This is, your, this is your going away present after the <laughs> sisters' training. You get to read that on your own. I'm just going to tell you a little bit of it, and then you, but I don't want to use this time to read it. We don't need to. When Watchman Nee was young, we all know, uh, he was... He was actually trained very much by Margaret Barber, who was a missionary to China, and she had a co-worker named Miss Groves, and Miss Groves is the one who helped him to learn how to preach the gospel. Isn't that something? You should read this testimony. It's so touching. She, she perfected the young watchman knee in the matter of how to pray for his classmates and how to speak the gospel to them. Fantastic. Then the second one is even more amazing. He learned the lesson of submission from Emmy Barber. And at the end of his testimony, this is his actual words, this is his testimony that he gave to some of his co-workers he says, listen to this, in such circumstances, I learned to obey an elder co-worker. In that year and a half, I learned the most precious lesson in my life. My head was filled with ideas, but God wanted to see me enter spiritual reality. In that year and a half, I came to realize what it is to bear the cross. 
Today in 1936, we have some 50 co-workers. Had it not been for that lesson of obedience, which I learned in that year and a half, I fear that I could not work together with anyone. How Watchman Nee learned to coordinate with so many co-workers. He learned it as a young man, and he learned it from Emmy Barber because she taught him that he was a tree of knowledge man. He went to her with all the reasons why the brother who he was serving with was wrong. And the only thing she would ever say to him is, he's older than you, you better obey him. And he would present his case. But, 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 she'd say, obey. That's the tree of life. She was a tree of life person. She was not a tree of knowledge person. And she taught him to be a tree of life person. Then he could coordinate with anyone. And, and he was, oh man, he was meek as a lamb. How did he get that way? Let me tell you, Brother Nee was one smart person. He was more than sharp. How did he become so meek? One day, he was, Watchman Nee was accused, wrongly accused. Some of the saints said, Watchman Nee is living with a woman who is not his wife. You know who she was? His mom. But he never explained that, and he never defended himself. He never said, that's my mother. He just didn't respond like a lamb. Where does that come from? It came from this. And then, listen, if this, if this were not our actual history, I wouldn't even believe it. The church excommunicated Watchman Nee. I just told you half an hour ago that we don't practice excommunication. We don't, but they did. And the person they decided to excommunicate was Watchman Nee. For six years. He didn't defend himself. In fact, you know what he said? Listen to what he said. If the church is right, it's the church. If the church is wrong, it's the church. If the church treats me well, it's the church. And if the, treat, if the church treats me poorly, it's the church. What, what produces that kind of spirit in a person? He learned that from a sister. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Then when we get to the testimony of Brother Lee, it's a little briefer, but, but there's three sisters involved. The first one is his mom. You know, Brother Lee, I don't know if you, if you Paul and, 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 and Rafe, if you ever heard Brother Lee talk about his dad. I never did, but I heard him talk about his mom. I never heard him even mention his father. And in his testimony, he doesn't. He talks about his mother. He says, my mother was a believer. And so first, the mother was a believer, and she would take him to Christian meetings, but he wasn't saved. Then his older sister, he had a Miriam, just like Moses. He had a Miriam. His older sister got genuinely regenerated. She started praying for him. And, and he understood later in life that was, that's instrumental in him becoming a, a believer is his sister prayed for him. Then the most amazing part, he, he got saved in a gospel meeting where a sister preached the gospel and the sister was 25 years old. Peace Wong. And he, he later testified, he said, I've never heard a message that was so powerful. It was given by a 25-year-old sister. Now you might say to me, Brother Mark, yesterday you said the sisters should not teach. 
Gospel preaching is not teaching. All the sisters should preach the gospel. Now, we may not ask you to speak in a gospel meeting, but you could certainly testify in a gospel meeting. And she did. She, she spoke a word from the book of Exodus. Listen to this. A 25-year-old sister preaches the gospel using the tyranny of Pharaoh as a type of being in bondage in sin in the world. Man, I don't even think I could give that message. But that 25-year-old sister did, and <clears throat> that's how Brother Lee got saved, was through her speaking. So I put these here just to, to give you our history. Our real-life history is that you and I are sitting in this room today because of some sisters. <laughs> I, I really... Uh, sometimes I joke about this, but it's really not a joke. I'm really looking forward to meeting Emmy Barber in the next age. I, aren't you? I really am, because I feel like she's my relative. Uh, she doesn't know me, but she she's my she's my great grandma. You know, I, I need to meet Emmy Barber and Miss Groves and Peace Wong. Um, I'm surely looking forward to that. And that's our burden, sisters, that in the church life, the Lord will continue this kind of of heritage. And some of you have spoken of your spiritual mothers. Isn't it lovely? I just love to hear that. And, um, yeah, I've had some spiritual mothers, too, especially Beth Rademacher. I'll never forget one of the days my wife and I went to her house. She was a very mature believer, both in human age and in life, the divine life. And she was talking to us one day, and my wife and I were still in our 20s. And she spoke to us. She said, we need to learn how to fight against the enemy. And she said, don't be afraid of Satan. Do not be afraid to speak to Satan. I was like, man, this, this lady, she's, she's a warrior. She's, don't be afraid of Satan. You tell Satan he's been defeated. I was like. <laughs> a sister can be a great help to the brothers. If you function properly, you'll be a great, great blessing to the church. And I hope this brief fellowship this weekend has given you some things to consider before the Lord. And uh, I, think, I think the Lord has been with us. I'm going to stop here so that we have time for you to speak some more.